Hello and welcome to The Beethoven Files, episode 46. I'm Terence O'Grady, and today we're going to talk about Fidelio, Beethoven's only completed opera. Of course Beethoven wanted to compose an opera, although by 1804 he had already enjoyed a number of successes as a composer of instrumental music, the world of opera beckoned powerfully. The names of the most famous opera composers of the day were on everyone's lips, and Beethoven was aware that great fortunes could be gained in that field. It's not that Beethoven's composing and the contributions of his patrons had not provided him with a decent standard of living, but Beethoven, not terribly disciplined in the handling of his finances, often found himself short of cash, and how wonderful it would be not to have to be constantly scrambling for money and negotiating with his publishers for what he often felt were insultingly minimal payments. But was Beethoven ready to compose an opera? He had not composed a great deal in the way of theatrical or dramatic music for the voice at that point, but his very early cantatas from 1790, which we talked about in episode 3, demonstrated that his instincts were good, even if the application of those instincts was a little uneven. And Beethoven certainly recognized that he had much to learn in this area. That is why, in 1794, he supplemented his lessons with Haydn and Albrechtsberger with instruction on vocal composition in the Italian style with Salieri that instruction perhaps coming to early fruition with Beethoven's well-received concert aria for soprano, A Perfido, Opus 65. This instruction may have been informal rather than formal and consistent, but Beethoven was clearly appreciative of Salieri's assistance, later composing a theme in variations on one of his melodies and dedicating to him his first three piano sonatas from Opus 12. Whether Salieri admired Beethoven in return is a somewhat open question, but not really relevant to our concerns right now. When Beethoven did finally turn his attention toward composing an opera in 1803, the circumstances were, at least initially, rather propitious. The director of a new Viennese theater just opened in June 1801 was Emanuel Schikaneder, an all-around man of the theater, singer, actor, and librettist. He was most known for the colorful and imaginative libretto he had written a few years earlier for Mozart's Magic Flute. But Schikaneder was still ambitious and continued to produce new libretti. Always in search of new talent, he had seized upon Beethoven as his choice to set his newest libretto, Vestas Feuer, described as a grand heroic opera based on a subject from ancient Rome. It was actually the second libretto he had offered to Beethoven, but the first, based on the life of Alexander the Great, had not interested him at all. But he was willing to invest some time on Vestas Feuer. After all, he might initially have been intrigued by an opera that seemed on the face of it to be both dignified and heroic. And then, of course, there were the fringe benefits. Associated with the new theater was a building that housed the theater's office and apartments for Schikaneder and others associated with the company, and Beethoven was offered one of these apartments as he worked on the new opera. 
his brother Carl, temporarily and not too successfully, acting as Beethoven's business manager at the time, was soon installed in another of the apartments. But despite these perks, Beethoven did not rush into composing the music to the new libretto. He was initially much too involved in the completion of the Eroica Symphony to carve out much time for the libretto, and in the end only composed the music for the first two scenes, before dropping the project after having developed serious doubts about the worthiness of the libretto. Louis Lockwood, in writing about Beethoven's dealings with Schikaneder and the work he had completed on his libretto, refers to Beethoven's letter to his friend Rocklitz, in which he criticizes the libretto language and verse forms, in a manner that suggests that Beethoven may have been more sophisticated in dealing with literary and dramatic matters than he is usually given credit for. At any rate, Beethoven's lack of enthusiasm for Schikaneder's libretto was soon replaced by his avid embrace of the next libretto to come to his attention, one based on a seemingly autobiographical story, Leonora and Married Love, by Jean-Nicolas Bouilly. This story had already been transformed into a libretto and set as an opera in Paris in 1798 and would be set again in an Italian version in 1804. But this did not detour Beethoven. It was exactly his sort of libretto, dealing as it did with the heroism of a loyal wife in freeing her unfairly imprisoned husband, and set within the broader context of the French Revolution, although set in Spain to please the censors. Schikaneder's libretto, he had finally realized, was foolishness masquerading as nobility, whereas the Leonora story embodied true nobility and the power of loyalty, love, and heroism. Schikaneder approved this new topic for Beethoven, perhaps grudgingly, but this by no means guaranteed a smooth road ahead, because shortly thereafter, Baron Peter von Braun bought the theater and his relationship with Beethoven was by no means a cozy one. Josef von Sonleitner, the secretary of the Imperial Theaters, was brought in to write the German version of the book, and Beethoven immediately began working on the music, completing a first version in the summer of 1805. Rehearsals for the new work began immediately, but there were problems from the beginning. Some singers complained of the overly strenuous technical requirements, labeling the work unsingable and requesting changes to the score. Beethoven was not sympathetic, complaining, according to one source, that we Germans have too few dramatically trained singers for the part of Leonora. They are too cold and unfeeling. The Italians sing and act with body and soul. The orchestra in rehearsal also showed itself to be careless and lazy in Beethoven's opinion, particularly in rendering the sharp dynamic contrasts which are so important in Beethoven's dramatic style. Much has been written about the premiere performance of Leonora in November of 1805. The opera was launched under the title Fidelio, so as not to be confused with other settings of the Leonora libretto although Beethoven himself had wished to retain Leonora as the title. The fact that it was far from a success has been attributed to various circumstances. The singers were lackluster. The orchestra was weak. 
Many of Beethoven's supporters and patrons had fled Vienna prior to the performance because the French had recently occupied the city. Because of that occupation, the audience was made up largely of French officers, some of whom had no real sense of the plot, and some of whom who did may have seen that plot as a thinly disguised attack against them as the oppressors. And the work itself had its own share of problems. The three acts seemed overlong, and the first act in particular seemed bloated. Beethoven was naturally very upset by the lukewarm reception to his work, and when friends and fellow musicians later gathered in a sort of intervention in December 1805 to urge modifications and cuts on the composer, he resisted them firmly at first, but eventually agreed to the elimination of some numbers and reduction from three acts to just two. The opera was then mounted again in March with these changes, and with the libretto revised by Beethoven's friend, Stefan von Brüning, and the new version seems to have made a better impression. But Beethoven was still not satisfied with the quality of the presentation or with his share of the profits, and so he withdrew the work after three performances. It wasn't until 1814 that Fidelio was revived with yet another revision in the libretto, this time by an experienced poet associated with the theater where the opera was to be performed. These new changes were readily accepted by Beethoven, and he immediately set to work on the necessary musical revisions. The work was performed in May 2014, although the final Fidelio Overture had not been completed at that point, and the Leonora III Overture was substituted for it. Beethoven had again campaigned for the title to be Leonora, but once again the theater officials insisted on Fidelio. Now let's turn to the music itself. We talked about the different overtures composed for the opera in the last episode, so we'll begin here with the first vocal number as it appears in most versions. That first number is a duet between Giacchino and Marcellina, in which a couple of things are immediately made clear. Both are young and naive, and Giacchino is madly in love with Marcellina, and, alone with her at last, is eager to engage her in conversation. But Marcellina is having none of it. She has work to do, and besides, Giacchino rarely has anything important to say, in her opinion. After a short orchestral introduction, with its frequent staccatos and short repeated motives setting the stage for a light-hearted exchange, Giacchino begins in A major with a typically jovial phrase. Anxious to pour a little cold water on Giacchino's enthusiasm, Marcellina echoes his phrase, but in B minor. Giacchino is forced to respond in B minor. Do listen to me, don't be in a huff. And Marcellina answers in A major. I can hear you well enough. Back and forth they go, echoing each other's phrases, but never really getting together, even when their voices combine. You never listen to me, you never leave me alone. After the opening motive from the introduction returns in a little transition, Giacchino re-enters and makes clear what's on his mind. He wants to set a date for their wedding. She plays along briefly, but she's clearly just teasing him. It's all wonderfully Mozartian. Here's a little of that first section.
Herzchen, jetzt sind wir allein. Wir können vertraulich plaudern. Es wird ja nichts Wichtiges sein. Ich darf bei der Arbeit nicht zaudern. Ein Herzchen, du trotzige Du. So sprich nun, ich höre ja zu, ich höre ja zu, ich höre ja zu. Blickest, so bring ich kein Wörtchen hervor. Wenn du dich nicht in mich schickst, wirst du nicht gefallen, das Ohr. Ein Feierchen, so nur höre mit so, dann lass ich dich wieder wieder zu. Later, after a temporary key change to C major and some musical knocking sounds, Giacchino complains that someone is knocking for him again and he must leave Marcellina who is actually quite pleased about that. With Giacchino out of the picture for a moment, Marcellina, in a somewhat more emotionally yearning style, confesses that she does feel sorry for Giacchino, since at one time she did have feelings for him. But she has now become completely enamored of Fidelio, her father's, Rocco, new assistant at the prison, who, of course, is really Leonora, in male disguise who has taken the position to be closer to Floristan, her husband, and perhaps even to help him escape. rate, Giacchino soon returns, and the duet at cross-purposes recommences, with Giacchino again insistent that Marcellina set the day for their wedding as promised, and Marcellina, of course, insisting that she never promised such a thing and has no intention of doing so. We have more key changes and some tempo changes ahead, but the basic plot point has been made. Giacchino tries again and again to get a positive response from Marcellina, but she's weary of the whole business and just wishes he'd stop. It's a lively enough duet, and it establishes an important part of the plot, even if doing so at greater length than might be necessary. We'll move on now to the second aria, of which I'll play only a little bit. In the spoken dialogue that precedes it, typical of Zingspiel's, we finally hear from her father, Rocco, offstage, as he repeatedly calls for Giacchino. Giacchino leaves, unhappily as usual, and Marcellina is left alone as she expresses her love for Fidelio, singing of the hope and joy that dwells in her heart. The elevated style hinted at in Marcellina's earlier solo portion of the duet is now further developed here. We're in C minor as we begin, two-four time, and marked andante con moto. 
the minor key and generally restrained vocal approach in the opening measures, where she moves carefully up and down the tonic C minor chord, may express some of the tentative nature of Marcellina's perspective. She is imagining the possibility of her future happiness with Fidelio, but, as she says, a maiden must not reveal half of what she feels. The melody tilts briefly in the direction of the relative major of E-flat for this sentimental phrase, but the section concludes back in C minor, where it began. But after a short transition marked by descending staccato triplets, we hear a new melody, somewhat related to the first, but more confident now, in C major and with a little faster tempo, expressing the thought, With hope today my heart does swell, with joy no tongue can ever tell, my happy days are nearing. Beethoven's orchestrations are reasonably standard here, but you may well have noticed an unusually effective use of the woodwinds, especially the oboe here, with its florid exchanges with the soloist. The C minor section returns with a new text, expanding on the sentiments of the earlier section. And then the C major section returns with its original text, leading to a final, slightly faster section somewhat like a cabaletta, but slowing down the rhythmic momentum twice to feature a pair of expressive fermatas. But we are going to move on now to the next number. In the spoken dialogue that follows, we are introduced briefly to Leonora in her guise of Fidelio, Rocco's assistant jailer. Rocco and Marcellina are both present as well, and Rocco compliments Leonora Fidelio on being a hard and devoted worker. Leonora Fidelio says, Do not think that I do my duty merely for the sake of wages. By the way, at this point, I'm going to simplify things and just refer to the character as Fidelio because that's the face she shows to the world. Meanwhile, Rocco, who thinks that Fidelio has developed feelings for his daughter, 
Marcellina, replies, Hush, do you think I cannot read your heart? This takes us to a classic vocal quartet employing all the main characters so far. It's a lovely ensemble in G major, 6-8, and marked Andante Sostenuto, and in the form of a canon, with each part coming in one at a time with the same melody. But of course, even though they all start out singing the same tune, they have very different perspectives, as their texts indicate. But since everyone is really just expressing their own inner thoughts, no one is enlightened by what they hear from the others. Predictably, Marcellina, who is the first to present the melody, is still going on about how happy she hopes to be with Fidelio. Fidelio, on the other hand, sees danger ahead because she realizes that Marcellina has fallen in love with her and that can only end badly. Rocco assumes the affection that his daughter has is reciprocated and so looks ahead to everyone's happiness. Giacchino predictably thinks that things can hardly be worse because he too is aware that Marcellina has fallen for Fidelio. The texture naturally increases in complexity as new voices are added into the mix, and Beethoven harmonizes the whole of it simply but very sensitively. I'm only going to play the first part of the quartet at the entrance of the first voice through the introduction of Rocco's part. spoken dialogue that follows, Rocco, who is apparently quite confident that Fidelio is in love with his daughter, says to Fidelio, I shall make you my son-in-law. Marcellina is present and expresses her enthusiastic agreement to this, but Rocco goes on to say that it can't happen right away, not until the overseer, who will later be introduced as Pizarro, departs for Seville. 
Fidelio is present for this announcement and must pretend to be pleased. She cannot run the risk of alienating Rocco, but is inwardly panicking. And then Rocco passes on a bit of his wisdom to the supposed loving couple. Yes, to be happy, a couple must love each other truly, but that is not the only thing necessary for a happy household. One must also have gold. He then launches into a solo aria which some commentators have praised as a fine example of comic characterization, while others have questioned its merit on various grounds, including its fragmented quality, its repetitiveness, and the fact that it doesn't really seem to be in Rocco's character, given the generous nature he projects elsewhere. I'll only play the first part of it. It's in B-flat major and begins in 2-4 time with an initial tempo marking of Allegro Materato. Rocco sings, If you have no gold, then happiness is not secure. Life will be dull and you'll suffer many a care. Here are the first 13 measures serving as something of an introduction. Hat man nicht auf Gold, mein Lieben, kann man nicht ganz glücklich sein. Traurig schleppt sich vor das Leben, mancher Kummer stellt sich ein, mancher Kummer stellt sich ein. The next section, Allegro in 6-8 time, features some fast-moving contrapuntal activity in the strings as Rocco continues vocally along the same lines. But when you've a pocket as full as twill hold, then fate will reward your advances, for love and power will attend you for gold, fulfilling your loftiest fancies. Doch wenn's in den Taschen verklingelt und rollt, da hält man das Schicksal gefangen und macht. Und Liebe verschafft dir das Gold und stillet das kühnste Verlangen, das kühnste Verlangen. Und stillet das kühnste Verlangen. This takes us back to the original tempo for a third section, back into four time one that exhibits perhaps the most distinctive melodic material, notably the sweeping ascending line in eighth notes, and serves as something of a refrain, later repeated with the same text, one that proceeds very much along the same lines I've described. Dame Fortune's favors oft are sold, I, tis a famous, famous thing, is gold. After a two-measure transition, we hear the first section again, with a new text, but the sentiments are anything but new. Here is part three, which acts as a refrain, going into a repeat of part two with that new text. It then passes into a repeat of part three with the same text, and the aria comes to a quick conclusion. I'm only going to play part three, the refrain, going into a repeat of the first section with the new text. Das Glück dient wie ein Knecht für Sold. Es ist ein schönes, schönes Ding, das Gold, das Gold. Es ist ein schönes Ding, das Gold, ein goldes Gold. Das Gold, das Gold. Wenn 
sich nichts mit nichts verbindet, ist und bleibt die Summe klein. Wer bei Tisch nur Liebe findet, wird nach Tische hungrig sein, wird nach Tische In the spoken dialogue that follows, Fidelio bemoans the fact that Rocco does not seem to have full confidence in him, because he does not allow Fidelio to help when Rocco goes down to the subterranean vaults to tend to the prisoners of state. Rocco replies that he is under strict orders not to allow anyone else to be in that area, but finally relents and admits he could use the assistance. Fidelio is obviously most concerned about one particular prisoner, Florestan, who is subject to the tightest security. How long has he been in prison, she asks. More than two years, Rocco replies. Fidelio responds, more than two years, he must be a great criminal. Rocco answers, or have great enemies. That amounts to much the same thing. After some further discussion, we hear a trio with Rocco, Fidelio, and Marcellina. It's an extravagant one in which the three of them sing of the ramifications of Fidelio's going down with Rocco to see the prisoner in the subterranean cell. At times, the three parts are highly individualized, since, as before, we have three characters often expressing highly differentiated sentiments. But at times, the three meld together very smoothly. There is, after all, some common ground. But we'll skip over this one and move on to take a quick look at the evil Pizarro. He has shown up to pick up dispatches and inspect the prison. To his great consternation, he finds a letter from the minister which charges him with malfeasance, specifically the illegal incarceration of prisoners, victims of arbitrary power, as he puts it. And the minister will arrive tomorrow to assess the situation. Pizarro immediately panics, thinking of Florestan, who has obviously been held in the prison illegally. If the minister is to discover Florestan, what then? Pizarro quickly decides that he must act quickly so that there will be no prisoner to discover. Since his hatred for Florestan is personal and extreme, it's clear that he'll have no qualms about eliminating him. I'll play just the opening of Pizarro's aria, in which he sings, Ha, it is not too late, my vengeance shall be tasted. To see his heart's blood wasted was rapture ever so great. You will hear that Pizarro's credentials as the villain of the plot are made crystal clear right from the beginning, with the minor key, his evil laugh, and the driving diminished seventh chords in the orchestral accompaniment. Pizarro realizes that he must have Rocco's help in pulling off the murder of Florestan. So the next number is a duet between Pizarro and Rocco. 
Pizarro tells Rocco what they must do and tosses him a purse full of money. But Rocco recoils at the mention of murder. He sings, I am not hired to kill. But in the end, he agrees to play his part by digging the grave. After all, he sings of the prisoner, how long has been his pain. To kill him is to spare him. We'll pass over that duet and move on to a recitative and aria by Fidelio. She has overheard Pizarro's plans and is understandably shocked and horrified, which she expresses in the opening recitative. But the aria that follows is all noble lyricism, as she looks ahead, sure that love will guide her to complete her task successfully. Come, hope, let not the only star of sorrow be denied me. Oh, come, light thou my goal, however far. Yes, love will surely guide me. It's a fairly complex aria, which also features a faster section in which Fidelio proclaims boldly that no craven fears will appall her and she will follow her wifely duty. But we'll move on to the next number. In the spoken dialogue that follows, we first hear more sparring between Giacchino and Marcellina as she again tries to explain why Fidelio has replaced him in her heart. But soon the conversation moves on to more serious matters as Rocco and Fidelio enter. Fidelio pleads with Rocco to allow the prisoners a little time above ground to walk in the garden and see the sun again. At first, Rocco resists the idea. What will the overseer say? But eventually he relents, and that leads us to the finale of the first act, the prisoners' chorus in which the prisoners express awe at having been temporarily released from their dark cells into the glorious sunshine. They sing, Oh, what joy, released from gloom to breathe the air reviving. Oh, life, oh, joy of living. We're in B-flat major, 2-4 time, and Allegro ma non troppo, with a slowly unfolding orchestral introduction before the prisoners in a full four-part chorus enter with the voices added from lowest to highest one at a time. The point is often made in connection with the opera that Beethoven is at his best when summoning up the highest and most noble emotions, and that's very much the case here in what begins is a hymn of thanksgiving.
A little later, and with a change of key to G major, the tenors take over for a more subdued passage, asking God to help them, and singing, Hope still whispers in my breast, we shall be freed. But as all four parts return, a sense of trepidation begins to emerge, even as they sing of achieving freedom, which Beethoven signals with a turn to C minor and a series of chromatic chords, which, in the end, serve to bring about a striking modulation, first back to B-flat major, and then after a series of diminished seventh chords, to a more fragmented and fearful passage in which the prisoners, initially introduced by a bass soloist, warn each other to speak softly, since spies may be listening to them. Here's a little of that passage, still in G major initially, after all four parts have returned, but heading into the modulation I just mentioned, and then leading into the section introduced by the bass soloist. But the first act is not quite done. The tempo now changes to Allegro Vivace, and Rocco and Fidelio enter the scene and discuss, in an impassioned recitative, what they will do with the prisoner who has been so long kept in the deepest dungeon. Fidelio questions Rocco on what must happen next. He replies, we must set him free, by which he means his death will release him from his suffering. Fidelio asks if Rocco is bound to kill the man. No, no, Rocco insists. No murder will I do. We must only dig the grave. Fidelio is shocked, although she is still not completely sure that the imprisoned man is actually her husband. This exchange between the two of them goes on for some time, with tempo changes and key changes, and with a fair amount of time spent with the characters urging each other to delay no longer and get on with their task. At times, the style is more recitative-like in its directness and simplicity, and at other times, it is more ornate and flowers up into more emotional phrases, particularly in Fidelio's case. Later, Giacchino and Marcellina rush in to report that Pizarro comes in angry haste. He is, of course, angry that the prisoners have been let out of their cells for a few moments. But Rocco talks him down a bit. It is, after all, the king's name day. Pizarro relents a little, but then prods Rocco to get the prisoners back inside their cells and to get on with his grave digging. 
as they return to their cells, we hear one last time from the prisoner's chorus, supplemented sympathetically by Marcellina, Fidelio, and Giacchino, and by Pizarro and Rocco, who have their own more somber dialogue to continue. Along with the chorus, now Beethoven is balancing five voices, some expressing the same sentiments, some with very different concerns to express. It's really quite impressive, and although the overall effect is poignant, it's still not really clear at this point how all of this is going to turn out, although it's probable that the audience has a pretty good idea. But as worthy as this final ensemble and chorus number is, we're going to jump ahead to Act 2. And the second act begins with an aria that is widely seen as the high point of the entire opera. The very evocative introduction to the aria begins in F minor, 3-4 time, piano, and is marked grave. Beethoven will not be rushed here. It unfolds slowly with a series of chords, strings alternating with horns and woodwinds, with frequent crescendos and decrescendos and sharp dynamic contrasts. The first distinctive and tension-filled melodic motive is introduced in measure 11, followed by others as we proceed. And diminished seventh chords again play an important role. Even the timpani gets into the act, alternating notes of a diminished fifth. When the recitative finally begins, Florestan, a tenor, enters on a high G, quite an accomplishment for a man half-dead from starvation, as a number of commentators have pointed out but we have to allow Beethoven a little dramatic license here. Florestan's text is as grim as you'd expect. He begins, God, what gloom is here, O silence full of terror. As the key begins to shift beneath his feet, he continues, Lonely as my grave, no living soul is near. A deft enharmonic modulation delivers us first to B major and then E major, as the diminished seventh chords give way temporarily to major key resignation, if not optimism, as his thoughts turn to God. O heavy trial, yet in God there is no error. His will be done, whatever the anguish I may bear.
At the end of my excerpt, you heard another very inventive modulation, starting in E major but ending up in A flat major, the starting point for the actual aria. Here's a little of the aria itself, the opening bars of which were quoted in the opening measures of the Leonora II and Leonora III overtures. It's a wonderful melody in 3-4 and Adagio Cantabile, calm and yet poignant because of the subtle harmonic touches, a melody with which Florestan attempts to find peace as he ruminates on the things that led him into this situation. Life was still so fresh and joyful when I met a fate untoward, bold the words I spoke and loyal, and these chains are my reward. Later, there is a contrasting section with a shift to a faster tempo, common time in F major, with a faster-moving melody, with many repeated shorter note values meant to suggest an increase in intensity and perhaps even a breathless, hallucinatory quality. One English translation at this point describes the mood as with an exaltation akin to madness, though outwardly tranquil. The text does suggest an hallucinatory element here. He sees a light in his prison cell, then an angel. Then he realizes that the angel is Leonora, come to rescue him. The next number begins with a melodrama, spoken dialogue over music, in which Rocco and Fidelio have made their way down to the prisoner's cell. He seems asleep for the moment as they discuss the digging of his grave. Fidelio still can't get a good look at the prisoner's face, but increasingly feels that it must be her husband. This is followed by a duet in which Rocco begins to dig the grave and Fidelio strains for a better glimpse of the sleeping prisoner. Rocco insists they must work quickly, for Pizarro will soon be there. But while she keeps insisting that she's there to help him, she really seems preoccupied with confirming the prisoner's identity and is mostly standing around singing to herself about the poor, suffering prisoner. Then, in an exchange of spoken dialogue, Florestan begins to wake and addresses Rocco, 
asking him, among other things, who is the overseer of this prison. Rocco replies that it is Pizarro, and he will be here soon. Florestan says, Pizarro, the very man whose crimes I dared to bring to light. Florestan pleads with Rocco, please get word to my wife. Tell her that I am lying here in chains. Rocco replies, it's impossible. I should only ruin myself without doing you any good. But Rocco does offer him a sip of wine. He calls Fidelio, who has by this time finally become sure the prisoner is her husband, to come over. And Florestan says, who is this? My turnkey, in a few days to be my son-in-law, says Rocco. A trio begins in which Florestan first sings of his gratitude for the sip of wine. Rocco joins in, expressing sympathy for the man. And Leonora, now sure of the prisoner's identity, sings how wildly beats this heart of mine and swells with hope and fear. Here's a little of that trio. In the spoken dialogue that follows, Florestan sees that Rocco has gone, but not before blowing on a shrill whistle, and he becomes agitated, saying, Where is he going? Is that the signal for my death? Fidelio tries to quiet him, but he cries out, Oh, my Leonora, shall I never see you again? Fidelio comes closer to him and says, Be calm, I tell you. Whatever you may hear or see, do not forget that providence rules over all. But then Pizarro enters, he tells Rocco. Now let the boy leave us. Fidelio pretends to leave, but stays in the background. Under his breath, Pizarro says, I must get rid of those two this very day, so that nothing may come to light. But to Rocco, he says simply, unchain him from the stone, as he draws a dagger. This takes us to a quartet, although it starts out with something of a soliloquy by Pizarro, who is quite enthusiastic about this opportunity to take vengeance on Florestan for his earlier attempts to expose Pizarro's past crimes. Here's the first part of Pizarro's rant, beginning with, He Dies Here.
Floristan responds steadily to all Pizarro's talk of vengeance with, It's murder that you will do. But that response is hardly going to dissuade Pizarro, who sets himself to stab Floristan. But then Fidelio appears, out of nowhere, and shields Floristan with her body, crying, Hold back! Floristan cries out, Oh God! And Rocco, as surprised as anyone, basically says, What? Fidelio continues, in control, but with increasing emotion. You'll have to plunge your knife first in my own breast, and I've sworn your death for your murderous acts. Floristan is clearly still confused. Rocco tries to tell Fidelio to stand down. Pizarro says, Boy, you are mad. How dare you oppose my will? Things go beyond confusing when Fidelio then declares, First, kill his wife. Pizarro blurts out his wife, echoed by Rocco, and Florestan a split second later says, My wife? Musically, things are, as you'd expect, quite intense here, with throbbing eighth notes in the orchestral accompaniment, including some repeated dissonances. Then, softly, Fidelio turns toward Florestan and says, Yes, it is Leonora. And he finally begins to recognize the truth. Now Fidelio turns to the others and says, I am his wife, and I've sworn to avenge his wrongs. Still, all of this barely seems to be sinking in for the other three. But eventually they get the point, and Florestan says, I can hardly breathe with joy. Pizarro says, Was there ever a wife so bold? And Rocco says, In dread my blood runs cold. But Pizarro recovers his confidence quickly. Do I recoil before a woman? Together they shall feel my wrath. All four go on to continually state their positions in an atmosphere of near chaos, with Beethoven employing just about his entire arsenal of tension-inducing musical devices. Here's the section beginning where Fidelio reveals herself as Leonora, closing with the sound in the distance of a trumpet call. That means the minister, Don Fernando, is on his way, and the day may be saved.
The nature of the quartet changes dramatically at this point, as you might expect. It is chaos no longer. Three of the four are naturally delighted to hear the trumpet call, and they express the sense of relief with longer note values and a more measured pace as they sing, The danger is over, God be praised. But Pizarro, of course, is not happy about this new development, and he keeps repeating, Death and Hell. As you heard at the end of my excerpt, the trumpet then sounds again, and Giacchino comes bounding in and, in spoken dialogue, announces that the minister is coming. He's already at the castle gate. Rocco is, of course, excited to hear this, and says, God be praised. We are coming immediately. Let the men with torches come down and accompany the Lord Overseer, Pizarro, upstairs. And then the quartet continues, again changed, rather more boisterous, with Leonora and Florestan, now more confident of ultimate victory. Fidelio, I'll finally switch over and call her Leonora, now that she has revealed her true self. Leonora and Florestan sing, now strikes the avenging hour that lifts the chains from you. And later, the danger's over, God be praised. And later again, for courage and the power of love shall set you free. Pizarro naturally sees all of this quite differently and sings, Accursed be this hour, these saints are mocking me. Rocco still seems a bit confused. He sings again and again, O awful, awful hour, but later celebrates the fact that he will no longer be in the power of this vile wretch. Here is the new version of the quartet, beginning with the second trumpet call. With the victory seemingly won, we hear next a celebratory love duet between Leonora and Florestan. 
O joyful, joyful day, be welcome. Our nameless woes are over. Our hearts are wholly blessed. Here's a little bit of it. The victory may have been won, but there are some loose ends to tie up, and that's what the finale is all about. After a jaunty march-like introduction, we hear a chorus of guards, prisoners, and apparently assembled villagers singing, Hail to the day, hail to the hour so long desired through hopeless years. It's clearly a celebration of the downfall of all tyrants, not just Pizarro, and this universal quality is probably one reason that Beethoven was attracted to the libretto. That, and the importance of having a loyal, loving wife, a thing he was, of course, never able to accomplish. Here's the first part of the chorus. Following that rousing chorus, Fernando, sounding a bit like Zarastro from Mozart's Magic Flute, makes his appearance and states that our gracious monarch sends me to learn your pains and needs. I will bring light into your darkness. No longer kneel like slaves before me. No tyrant's mandate I fulfill. A brother comes to seek his brethren. Whatever he can help, he will. Here's the first part of Fernando's Noble Declaration. Nicht länger 
kniet sklavisch nieder, Tyrannen strenge sei mir The chorus responds with another round of Hail to the Day, Hail to the Hour. But then Fernando continues, and other soloists start to interject. Rocco first, with Then Hear and Help, Oppression's Victims. Pizarro is present as well, and can't resist a few parting shots at Rocco, who ignores him and presents Florestan and Leonora to Fernando. Fernando has been told that Florestan had died years earlier and is very surprised to see him and outraged at his incarceration. He is even more astonished when he meets Leonora and is told of her bravery by Rocco, who explains how she came to him disguised as a man to seek the position of his assistant. Here, after another key change, is a little of that passage. Pizarro tries to interject, but is silenced by the minister, and is later led away by the soldiers. When Marcellina hears the whole story, she is still naturally a bit confused, but Giacchino is obviously delighted. After Rocco relates how Pizarro had intended to murder Florestan, and would have gotten away with it had Fernando not arrived, the chorus jumps in with, Away with him to punishment! Who such foul deeds has done? Let justice nevermore relent until revenge be won. We then segue into a passage dominated by a series of solo statements, and at one point, Fernando tells Leonora that she has earned the right to remove her husband's fetters, which, strangely enough, hasn't happened yet. It's a very poignant passage as she sings, Oh God, what a moment, and Florestan responds, No tongue my joy can ever tell.
Soon afterward, all joined together, repeating Leonora's and Florestan's words and extending their sentiments. The action slows for a pair of fermatas and then picks up again, Allegro Manontropo, as the chorus sings, after a rousing orchestral introduction, Every man will join us proudly who has won a noble wife. And Florestan and Leonora are allowed to toss in a few duet passages into the choral mix, he singing, Thy true heart forsook me never, and she, love to thee, has led me ever. There's another tempo change to Presto and the quintet of Leonora, Florestan, Fernando, and even Marcellina and Giacchino alternate and sometimes join with the chorus in singing again. Every man will join us proudly who has won a noble wife. And later, Nerican praises ring too loudly, hail to her who saved his life. And with this stalwart chorus, we reach the conclusion of Beethoven's opera. Here is the last part of the final chorus, starting with the change to presto all the way to the closing chords.
so what are we to think of Beethoven's only completed opera? The fact that he did not press ahead with other potential libretti later in his career suggests that the whole experience was not one that Beethoven relished repeating, although perhaps not. Perhaps it was just a question of no other libretto stirring his impulses the way that Leonora did. And what of the opera's place in Beethoven's complete body of work? Is it one of the strongest of his compositions? Does it rank with the great symphonies, with the great choral works, especially the Misa Solemnis, which we'll devote an episode to later? Maybe, but not too many Beethoven scholars argue for such an elevated position for Fidelio. Is it a question, perhaps, of a faulty libretto? Since the time the opera was first produced, the libretto has been admired by some, but denigrated by quite a few more. Now, for much of the English translation for this episode, I've used a singing version of the text, and that's certainly not going to capture all the nuances of the original German libretto. But the storyline, the character development, including the believability of the characters, the balance between serious scenes and light-hearted ones, all of these things generally come across even in a singing translation. And I don't think the results here point to a great dramatic achievement. Maybe in the end, with its lack of consistency and tendency toward over-repetition in the musical setting, this is a work which may not rank among Beethoven's greatest, but which contains moments of greatness, especially those moments expressing elevated sentiments. And if so, it still has to be counted a worthy achievement. For our next episode, we'll look at two great piano sonatas. Piano Sonata number 26, Les Adieux in E-flat Major, Opus 81A, composed in 1809-1810, and number 27 in E minor, Opus 90, composed in 1814.